the limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network? Connect with individuals that bring your average up? This is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, and to connect. There is no other community out there like this specifically for limited partners. So subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome. I'm your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome again. I'm your host, Jake Wiley. I'm really excited about this week's guest because I think we're going to get a slightly different take on kind of the messaging that we normally hear. I'm joined this week by Jeremy Roll. So Jeremy is the president of Roll Investment Group. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, Jake. And I want to apologize to you and everybody else. For some reason, I can't get my video working here, but I am here with you. It's so good to have you. Jeremy, for those of my audience out there that don't know you, which you're definitely well-known in the, in the industry here, I'd love it if you could give us a background on kind of how you started your investing. Absolutely. And again, thanks again for having me on. I just hope this helpful for everyone who's listening. I have been investing as a passive and limited partner investor since 2002. So we're recording this in 2022. So it's been 20 years, but I've been doing it full-time um, since 2007. That's actually when the cash flow got me out of the corporate world. I have been, I guess you can call me a professional. I, I call myself a full-time passive cash flow investor since 2007. I am hyper-diversified. I'm in over 60 LLCs right now. I've been in 150 to 200 over time. So I, I definitely more than I'd recommend. I'm not a financial advisor or anything, but just from my perspective as an investor, as an investor, definitely probably a lot and more than normal. But I have a lot of experience investing in a lot of different asset classes in real estate and non-real estate um, and some other stuff as well. Well, I think we're going to dig into that a little bit. Obviously, you've got a ton of experience with all those investments that you've made. Let's take a step back in time. We can go back to 2002, 2007 timeframe. What was exciting to you in the industry and the opportunity back in those days? Absolutely. Very different time back then as far as access to types of opportunities available. Asset classes have changed as well over time. But for me, why I got into all this is after the dot-com crash in 2000, 2001, for those of you who remember it, I was really sick and tired of two things in the stock market for my long-term retirement accounts. One was uh, volatility. And because I'm just a low risk, slow and steady guy. So the, to watch the market go up and down 30% a year just was not the right fit for me long-term. And uh, the lack of predictability is frankly would even bother me much more. And so it was really that lack of predictability that made me look elsewhere for different opportunities. And the whole point of that for me was just for more predictable returns for the, my long-term retirement account for 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. To have the lack of predictability was really bothersome for me as a long-term strategy. So I looked at very at different ways to invest, came across the concept of the alternative opportunities like real estate and cash flow, and I ended up focusing on more stabilized cash flowing opportunities with more predictable cash flow. And that's how I started. And that's, it's been my same focus now for 20 years. We get into like 2007 timeframe and obviously you get to 2008 and things change. So that was the last big correction, the big cycle. And I think admittedly we are there now again right we're on the precipice of, of some major changes i'd love to get your take and, and maybe where we draw we can draw parallels to what it was like in 2008 and what you're seeing or, or what you're thinking about the current cycle and how you view that yeah well i won't get into too much detail i think most people are probably familiar the 2008 challenge that caused a domino effect of liquidity in wall street some other problems that end up cascading to everything else what i find fascinating about 2022 
is that they call this the everything bubble. And it really is interesting. And what that means is really all assets, right? So we had real estate, crypto, and stocks, and all other probably alternative assets as well that were all inflated by just an unbelievable amount of liquidity and money printing that's taken place here, not just during the pandemic, which what everyone focused on, but frankly, in the years prior, we never really unwound the money printing that started in, in mass volume in 2008 and 9 that the Fed tried to, and they weren't able to. And so just a tremendous amount of, of liquidity, over liquidity, let's call it, that resulted in some very high asset prices. It really makes sense that now interest rates are heading up and the Fed is pulling back on the quantitative easing and going into quantitative tightening that we're actually seeing the reverse happen. It all actually makes sense. And so there's some really interesting things happening right now as far as here are the markets, investors not investing as much even in the alternative pricing changing in alternative assets now very interest rate shot up very very quickly much more quickly than normal that's impacting things as we speak so there's a, there's a lot of going on right now that i think will be more clear to everybody in the coming months because real estate and the economy tend to lag versus the stock market right the stock market is normally forward thinking and that's already had its uh, pretty interesting correction so far there's a delayed effect typically in real estate and some other assets and i think we're going to see that probably in the next 9 to 12 months well, if you don't mind going back a little bit and what you're talking about having liquidity in the marketplace and there's too much now, can you, can you break that down for some of us lay people, <laughs> what exactly that means and how that happened? Yeah. So uh, look, I'm not an expert on that by any means, but what I will say is that the Fed has been providing quantitative easing, been purchasing mortgage bonds most recently, which means that they're actually increasing demand in that market beyond what is typical of a normal supply and demand in the market that's just non-manipulated or non-supported by the, the Fed. And therefore, if they increase demand, interest rates are artificially lower. And we and with interest rates artificially lower, that allows people to buy more homes. That allows investors like us to pay a higher multiple for an apartment building or whatever asset is you're investing in because the returns are still going to work. And it, and so all that quantitative easing and all that support by the Fed and all the asset purchases is what really resulted in uh, an artificial market, so to speak, right? And I'm not saying the entire artificial market's going away, but what we're seeing is that there's been a, there's being an adjustment right now. Look at it this way is an easy way to explain it. When you were buying a home and interest rates are at 2.5, 2.75%, the average household could afford a uh, certain median household income would be at affordability up to a certain point if banks will let at that rate, right? At that amount for that, for that income. Well, fast forward to today where someone has about double the interest rate and uh, banks are not going to lend as much. And what does that mean? That means that that household cannot get as large a loan. And that means by definition, they can't afford that same house if they're not going to pay cash. And what that means is that that a household that six months ago, I'm just going to make up numbers, could have afforded a loan for 500,000, can now only afford a loan for 400,000. That, so that means that that home that was selling for 550 with the down payment or 600, those, that demand's going away, right? And that demand is getting reduced to a different price point. All this liquidity was in the market before, provided for all these very low interest rates. And frankly, also for a lot of institutional, even non-institutional, but large hedge funds and private equity funds to come in and borrow a lot of money at very low rates that incentivize them to put more and more money into all these types of things. A lot of that's being reversed right now. And it's absolutely vital that investors like you and I understand all this and understand the upcoming implications because the stock market domino goes first, but don't be fooled by anything you hear about, oh, the stock market's down, go into real estate instead. No, real estate always 
lag. It does not move as quickly. And I can explain why, but it usually lags by arguably six to 18 months, more like nine to 18 months, or nine to 12 months. And what you're seeing happen today or just happened in the stock market in the first half of this year, there's going to be an adjustment at all the hard assets as well. And frankly, my, and I, I don't even consider that an opinion, it's a fact. And, and the, why I could tell you it's a fact is because all investors, including the home buyers, can't afford the same amount of price that they could before because interest rates are higher just to begin with, to get similar returns or to have the same amount of money borrowed. They're just literally pure numbers that's objective. So it, it's really important everybody out there understands this and invests accordingly and just very careful right now. I think along those lines, and, and this is a point that I really want to bring up and make sure that we shed some light on, is that your point was well taken that there's a lot of people saying, hey, the stock market's so volatile, get into real estate. You're, you're making a really clear point that it's going to lag, the adjustment's going to lag. But then you think about a home affordability and a lot of the multifamily guys are saying, well, as home affordability becomes more of a challenge, then more people are going to be renting, right? And therefore this market will continue to remain strong. Yes, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I do think there's going to be strong demand, continued demand for rentals, whether it's single family or apartments. Part of it has to do with the lack of supply. Part has to do with the lack of affordability, like you're talking about. But I think there's another side to this, right? So that all makes sense on what is someone going to pay as a rent for a rental potentially, right? And I'm going to put aside what happens to renters when there's a recession and they can't afford as much payment, even though they actually still have to find a place to rent, because that will reduce rents. I mean, that's just the way the numbers work again. I want to point something else out though. So let me give in a direct multifamily example that I think it's really important for people to understand if they're not aware of any of this. What's going on in the market right now is that in 2021 and possibly 2020, I'm going to throw out a number that probably is wrong, but I'm going to guess that at least 80% of multifamily purchases occurred in a three to five year bridge loan structure. Okay. And Jake, I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Or do you have a, like, do you think that's maybe wrong? No, I, I, I totally agree with that. Okay. So if that's right, we assume that's right for a second. I don't know if you're aware, not only have the loan to values come down for those loans from 65% to below 50% in a typical scenario today, I'm talking about reduced liquidity, right? But interest rates on those loans are already up over 200 basis points and probably going up 300 basis points compared to what they were at this time last year, right? So what does that mean? That means that literally along the, the deals that they were buying before at the cap rates they were paying before cannot pencil out anymore. And that is an automatic price adjustment that's currently happening now at the 10 to 15% level on multifamily as we're speaking right now, right? Prices are now lower. And the reason why is because the buyers can't afford what they were able to buy before, not only because liquidity is going away, a lot of the lenders have left, the lenders that stay are, are, are just because of the risk right now with the recession upcoming, that they're providing much lower loan to value. When you pair the loan to value with a much higher interest rate, investor returns plummet. And the only way that it makes sense for someone to buy something now is to pay a lot less for it, or investors won't be interested. We could talk about the demand side of tenants on multifamily, but we also have to talk about what it makes sense to buy a building out today, regardless of the future demand and what investors are going to need to actually have happen right now, which is reduced pricing before they're actually going to pull the trigger on investing at all. And again, this is all just, this isn't subjective. It's really important people understand that this is numbers. I, I'm a numbers guy and it's all objective. It's just numbers and what investors are going to require as a return to invest in something. Well, I mean, I think if you're, you're willing, let's, let's get into those factors. What, what are tenants looking at? What are those other aspects that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, tenants or investors you're talking about? Uh, well, both, 
both. I think that's, it's going to impact on both sides. I'm more focused on the investor side, just because that's always what's going through my mind. And I'll give you a real easy example. An apartment building in Houston that was trading at a four cap, for example, and maybe had a 3% interest rate on it a year ago, right? Three and a quarter to whatever in that bridge loan structure, maybe even a little, little, little bit lower is in the high twos. What happens when interest rates on that are, are currently 5% instead of 3%? Are you as an investor going to go into that deal with negative leverage, meaning your interest rates actually higher and the cap rate you're paying? It doesn't make any sense. So what, what has to happen is that you used to have a spread that you were making the money off of to borrow the money. And that's how you actually had a return with the leverage. Now that building by definition, if the interest rate's five and you want to make the same, you have to have a similar spread and potentially even more spread because of inflation and other things. And so that's got to be at least a six, six and a quarter cap to make sense. Now, right now things are trading at around a five cap, I think, from a four cap before, so that's where you're getting, that's about 15%, it may be a little lower. But the bottom line is that that's the kind of thing I was talking about in more pure numbers. I don't know about you, but as an investor, I'm not investing in something that has negative leverage. It makes no sense at all. You're not, like, any syndicator is not gonna be able to get my money as a limited partner to invest in a negative leverage deal. So they're gonna have to negotiate the right pricing now, right? So going back to that liquidity, because that's so important, the liquidity is dictating all this. It's being forced upon the investors, just like the households, cannot buy as much of a house as they used to. That's being forced upon them by the liquidity and by the lenders. And, and I know that this is changing rapidly in terms of the, the way the cap rates, the interest rates and all of this is moving. But I guess, what are you hearing? Like if a GP, a sponsor syndicator was pitching you on a deal that's got this yeah. negative leverage situation, what are you hearing? Because that's something that I want to educate our, our listeners on. Yeah. What to build Look, for. I've seen, I'm seeing a much lower volume of multifamily opportunities coming out. And that's because of the fact that normally when you have hard assets, like this isn't a stock like Apple, where we can go and look at the last literally million prices paid for a transaction in the last hour. This is a slow moving target where there's a spread between someone, what one, someone's willing to pay and what was willing to sell it at. It's called a bid ask spread. And the problem is that one of the reasons why real estate is so slow is because the capitulation of a seller to finally agree to a lower price will take time. They have to go market the property, wait, wait, see if there's a buyer, reduce it. Wait, wait, reduce it. They have to be convinced that the market has changed and they're gonna try for the highest price. So it's a very long process. So what I would tell investors today and sponsors today, frankly, too, is you wanna wait because it takes a while for the bid-ask spread to actually get to where it needs to be to actually join up on a price, right? And actually firm up on where the price is supposed to land. So what you're probably gonna find right now is a lot of people asking too much, investors not willing to buy it, and eventually that supply is gonna come down in price. So there's a lot of low volume right now because of that. And I expect that to continue for probably a six to nine month period into early 2023. You're probably gonna be see just psychologically, either people who have to sell reducing prices at the end of the year for tax purposes, or people saying, I'm gonna try to the end of the year, and if not, I'm gonna reprice the beginning of 23, or something like that, right? That tends to happen as well, just psychologically. From a sponsor perspective, I would warn the sponsors that what I'm seeing is investors are scared. Investors have a lot less money in their stock portfolio. And depending on the type of investor, some investors are investing less or not investing. And some of them are actually as interested in this asset class or any hard asset. So for example, and I'm generalizing here, okay, but this is stuff that you asked what I've heard, this is what I've heard. And I know one investor group who has a very high percentage of tech investors, meaning people who come from the likes of Apple, Amazon, et cetera, those stocks were the first to go down, right? They led the charge. They were only able to raise about a quarter of the 
the amount that they could have raised a year ago on an apartment building raised recently. Literally one quarter, 75% reduction. Now that's an extreme case, but if you have a very tech heavy investor group that you're going with, or you have as investors, you're going to have a harder time right now. There are other groups out there, physician groups, attorneys, et cetera, professionals who are looking at the stock portfolio saying, my stock portfolio is down 20 to 30%. Hard assets is where I need to be. And there's a lot of money rolling into hard assets right now. That's what I'm seeing as well, depending on who you're looking at, right? So some, some uh, accredited investors are rolling to hard assets. Others are scared. And so the net effect is that if you have a completely mixed bag of like a very diversified investor group, what the sponsors are seeing is a definite reduction in the amount invested into a deal. But that will vary depending on the exact mix of investors you have. And that's, by the way, no surprise. That's what happens during a downturn. Now, what I think is going to happen as a phase two is that this is getting, I'm one person's opinion. I could be wrong, but I think we are going to eventually take another leg down in the stock market. We are on probability wise, very high probability for recession. If we have a recession, then everybody will be scared as opposed to the people rotating from stocks into hard assets at the moment. And the liquidity on the investor side will be even lower and it'll be even harder to find investors. Ironically, during the time in which it's often best to buy assets when people are scared and the prices are lower, right? So I know some sponsors who have spent years building up their investor group for this moment. They, they overbuilt an investor group having too many investors, knowing a certain percentage wouldn't invest in this time. And now they're on the hunt for stuff and they've now prepared themselves to only, if they only have a quarter or half their investors move forward during this timing, they're in good shape. So that's what I'm seeing out there. But we're in the, kind of the, I would call the first or second inning at best in this transition right now that's going to just take a lot of time to get through. And in, in, in terms of sponsors, most of the sponsors that I talked to, we were at the conference, the, the BEC conference not too long ago. It's still very bullish, right? I see all the social media posts about how great everything is and don't be worried about interest rates rising. And, and I think that there's a, there's a real risk of people kind of like glossing over the, the risk that's out there and, you know, maybe kind of jumping in with both feet being like, look, I need to stabilize this thing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Look, I see two camps of sponsors right now in terms of the people I'm talking to. One camp is uh, not as concerned, thinks of it as a much longer term horizon, isn't as concerned about the purchase price because they're going to add value and they think they're going to be able to be okay in, in a five-year plan or 10-year plan. And there absolutely is definitely merit to that. I can see why somebody would have that mindset. It could be technically actually exactly how it plays out in the end of the day, right? And those sponsors are the ones who are probably marketing for people to roll from stocks into hard assets, et cetera, because that's what they believe. And that's fine because that's their opinion and everyone's entitled to their opinion. They may be right. There's another camp of sponsors who are uh, a little bit more of my mindset personally, which is that they, they've been through this before. They know that there's a lag in real estate prices adjusting. I just spoke to one of them today. We had this conversation and they know there's a lag. They're already seeing price adjustments. They're trying to be ultra careful to not buy in too early with these price adjustments because they're anticipating those, even those bridge loan interest rates going up another hundred basis points in the coming months, as an example. And um, they feel like it's a little too early to jump in unless it's a phenomenal deal, right? And otherwise just wait. And so there are two camps of sponsors I'm seeing right now. Now, the question is, are either of those necessarily wrong or right? The truth is, is that they may both do very well in the end of the day, right? The person who's waiting for the right price is probably going to do well. The person who's got a longer term horizon and doesn't care as much about price may be fine in the end of the day. So what it really comes down to is your own opinion and philosophy, because there's a thousand ways to invest and none of them are necessarily wrong. So you're hearing me and my bias and my own opinion. I have very low risk and I'd rather wait in buying at a lower price. It's just my, the way my head works. But I tell everybody as a result of the way that I operate, when I'm looking to optimize pricing, 
In the meantime, that sponsor that's buying something today, right, that rather than waiting, is going to have an investor earning cash flow soon, and I'm not going to be earning cash flow while I'm waiting. And so that other investor and that sponsor might end up doing much better than me in the long term. But it's a question of comfort levels. So everyone out there has to do what is the best fit for them. And I think that's really key for everybody listening. You've got to figure out what makes the most sense for you. And please don't take my opinion or anyone else's opinion as like, oh, that's what I have to do. The key to this type of investing is to just do what you're most comfortable with. Yeah, this is a great point. And I think one I'd like to draw out a little bit more is we've talked about bridge loans, right? And yeah. we've got three to five year bridge loans and there's there's some risk in that in and of itself. So let's say we're in the sponsor camp that says, hey, we're, we're in it for the long haul. We're looking at this as a kind of a 10 year horizon. What should they be looking for, right? And, and kind of teeing this up with bridge loans because I think that there's a significant risk in that. So look, there's different types of bridge loans you can get. You get a decimal rate, fixed rate, et cetera. My opinion, based on the way that I invest, is that I'm always happiest with the long-term fixed rate loan, right? And that to me is a 10-year loan. Not everybody's comfortable investing 10-year horizon. I was talking to an investor the other day who wants to be in it three and five, three to five years. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different philosophy, right? So if someone's concerned about shorter term, but they're hell-bent on buying something today, one of the solutions is to actually buy something with a longer-term fixed rate loan. I think the challenge right now is that if you look at... The, it things from a bigger cycle perspective, okay? The types of deals I like to go into, stabilized cash flow, maybe minor value at upside, maybe not. Those deals went away in 2000 and call it 17, roughly 18, 16, 17. And what happened at that point is cap rates were so low. The only way that the sponsor was able to make sense of a deal was to use these shorter term bridge loans, look for a huge value add deal. Because if you were a cash flow investor like me, the cap rates were so low, that the cash flow wasn't attractive and I wasn't going to invest in that type of deal anymore. And they knew it, right? So they responded by pivoting and using this bridge loan type of structure. And that's fine. And a lot of people have done extremely well in the past few years with that structure, right? Very, very well and stuff. They've already exited extremely well. But times have changed. And now what people need to look for is stuff at the, a, a better value where cash flow could begin to make sense now, especially in face of the fact that we don't know if rents are gonna be going up or down in the near term, because in a recession, rents often don't go up, right? And you don't ever see that in a performa. I've only once ever seen a sponsor project rents going down once, and it was their best guess as to what year there'd be a recession. It was actually remarkable. But the reality is that rents go down during some recessions and during a lot of recessions. And so if you're getting into a value add deal that is dependent on pushing rents in the next two, three years, but there may be a recession in the next two, three years, well, you've got to take your own opinion and decide, is that a risk you're willing to take or not? Because frankly, that deal may do really well and it may not, but you have to decide what, what, whether you're comfortable with the risk today or not, right? So if it were me, I'd be reverting back to the usual ways of the Warren Buffett, which is you look for value. This is the time to do it. Prices are, are adjusting right now. That's a fact. And that means cash flow investors may be able to get back into regular deals if you're looking at a longer term fixed rate loan that's purchased at the right price. And that's very exciting for someone like me. Well, we, we've definitely beat up on multifamily, but you know, we've also thrown out the term real estate more generally. How do you feel about other classes of real estate? Do you feel it's all yeah. similarly bunched? Yeah. And I'm really sorry. Cause I, I personally didn't meet, I use using multifamily as an example. A lot of people tend to invest in it. I invest across most asset classes. I have the same opinion about most of the asset classes. You've got the same general math equation problem. Self-storage is one of the asset classes I love. Mobile home parks, another asset class I love. Cap rates have gotten so low that with these increased in interest rates, you're going to be at negative leverage in a lot of deals. Doesn't make sense, right? So what does someone have to do? They have to wait out 
the, the bid spread ask, the difference in the price until the prices get too just to where it makes sense for investors. And that's going to take a little, right? So if it's the same thing with other asset classes, I was not at all meaning to pick on multifamily. It's the exact same story. So my philosophy is be on the sidelines right now while prices are adjusting so you can get in at better prices unless you get such a spectacular deal right now, which sometimes they do exist, that you're compelled to take it now. Because if you think there's going to be a 20% price adjustment long-term in the next two years, and you can get in a deal today that's a 20% price adjustment, there's no reason not to do that deal necessarily, if that's your opinion. Well, I guess you, you bring up some of these things and you talk about, it's not really an opinion, it's a fact. Would you mind sharing some of the data points that you've you're, you're kind of using to, to base a lot yeah. of these, when, these thoughts yeah. off of yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we could talk about the yield curve for sure. The yield curve inverted, um, I think it was in March, but I, I really may be confusing the months at this point. So that has been a historically really, really uh, good predictor of recessions. And normally when you get a yield curve inversion, then you will end up with a recession at 6 to 24 months after that time most commonly six to 18 and most commonly 12 to 18 months. And the yield curve predicted a recession in the past century correctly every time, except for three times. And those three times were all very unusual, but different than today. And so we, I think we're in a situation where the probability of a recession is, I keep mentioning that theme and I think it's very high and I'm using the yield curve as my data point to believe that personally, right? From a probability perspective, because I'm extrapolating all the previous recessions mapped out against the yield curve. So if you look at it that way, we should be in a recession by sometime this fall or sometime in 2020. What's interesting though, what, what's interesting to consider too, is that we had a negative GDP growth in Q1, which is shocking to me considering everyone's talking about this very strong economy I, I laugh. How is the economy strong if it's negative? <laughs> like, does that make it, next time you read in the media, ask yourself that question. <laughs> does it, it's a great political talking point, but it makes no mathematical sense. So if we have a negative GDP growth in Q2, we actually are already in a recession, which is pretty fascinating. Now, a lot of people don't pre predict or project that we're going to have negative GDP growth in Q2 right now. The one that I think is one of the most realistic trackers, the Atlanta Fed now it's called, which tracks GDP and it tends to be probably a little bit more realistic rather than optimistic, uh, is that 1.3% projected GDP for Q2. So it's positive right now. And so um, you'll have to continue to watch that until they publish the real data down the line. We still got a, a little ways to go before we get the Q2 GDP real data. But the bottom line is, is that the, going back to the yield curve, so the yield curve is telling us there's a very high probability of recession coming up soon. Well, yeah, thank you. Cause I think that's really important. There are some things that we should be looking at, right? To kind of give us an indication of where things are going that are gonna lead us. Because like, as you mentioned it earlier, that real estate's gonna lag. Right. So what you see today is not necessarily what you're going to get, but we have good leading indicators to watch. But okay. So we've talked about a lot of things that you, we should be watching out for, but what do you like right now? Where are you investing? Yeah. So look, in the past couple of years, I've had to pivot. I, I normally prefer a long-term, more predictable, stabilized, cash flowing hard asset that's diversified tenant base with the experienced sponsor, right? That's what I look for. That wasn't a fit for me based off of low cap rates and a lack of predictability of recession, pandemic, rents, et cetera. Now we've got inflation causing a whole big problem. But so what I've done is in order to keep my money working so that I actually can try to keep in line with inflation and not lose value to inflation, I've kind of gone to three buckets. One is short-term opportunities where you'll have access back to your cap relatively quickly. One of the easiest ones to explain that I've been doing is, and I've been doing this every year, but it's particularly, it was particularly good in 2021, which is hard money lending. So which is you're lending on a first position loan on someone who's buying a home 
rehabbing it and flipping it uh, to an end buyer. Um, so last year, supply and demand imbalance was really in favor of investors, right? There's very short supply, very big demand, big price increases year over year. Very good position for someone who's lending on a single family flip, as you can imagine. This year, we're still in a somewhat a similar situation. Year over year, price increases have been medium price increases have been very high. Some of that is due to the fact that higher priced homes have been selling more robustly than lower priced homes. But still, we've been having a lot of momentum in pricing because of the very short amount of supply. What I'm concerned about in the next six to 12 months is supply drastically reducing and being cut off by the lack of liquidity and the lower amount of availability of loans at certain price points because of what we discussed already. So I'm being more cautious with that, but I still think that that could be the right play and a good play in the right markets at the right loan to values for sure. So that's one example of some short-term stuff I've been doing that's typically like a six to 12 month term on individual loans. And of course, the concept there is that if you could do something that's relatively safe today, especially from a loan to value perspective, and then get access back to your capital in six to 12 months and then redeploy it into lower asset prices, that was the entire uh, premise of that the whole time. And it still is, right? You want to be able to get access back to your capital and redeploy it into something else that might be a lower asset price at the better timing then. Uh, number two is unusual opportunities that, like we talked about before, if someone brings me a deal that's truly 20% below market rate from a few months ago, and you could prove it with comps and you're like, wow, this is an unusual, unique situation, might make sense to do today, right? One example of what I've been doing a lot of in the past 12, 24 months though, is tax abated multifamily. It's very unusual deals. Someone will come and buy an existing building and then uh, convert it into a tax abated structure, and, which means part of the units end up income restricted to the renters. And that flows just in the right scenario. It could just, you can, you can literally purchase something and the real numbers I'm using. You, you purchase something like a three and a half to three and a quarter cap, but the closing cap rate's like five, just a huge, because you're, you're reducing taxes by 75% plus, which is often reducing 20% of your expenses right to the bottom line with no reduction in revenue. So huge amount of buffer going in without any executional operational risk or any rent price risk going forward, any value added implementation risk, right? So I've been doing those types of deals, very unusual and giving me uh, you know, comfort of going in at those prices. The third bucket is opportunities where I don't have to worry about an asset price depreciating. Because the theme we've been talking about today is our asset price is adjusting and they're going down and you're going to get it at the wrong price, right? Which has a lot of implications. Well, if I can go to something where I already know something's going to depreciate to almost zero, then I don't have to worry about the asset price <laughs> going down. And this is not necessarily real estate, but I've been doing ATM investing since 2008. Those are the uh, machines at the, the nail salon, the liquor shop, the corner store, not the Bank of America and Chase machines, but the privately owned machines where that's a computer and a bill feeder and a keyboard and a screen and a case, and they're depreciating to almost zero. So if I have um, faith in the ability for that to perform during a recession, which I think is coming up, then I don't have to worry about the asset price decreasing because that's already projected into the projections. I have to worry about the transaction volume supporting the income, right? And if I think that's a high probability, well, that could make sense right now in face of a recession in face of asset prices decreasing because none of the other stuff matters. So that's another vertical. So those are the three verticals I've been focused on. Very hard to find a lot of these deals, but those, those are the verticals I think have been making sense to me, you know, at the moment. Jeremy, that, that's awesome information. And I know it's probably stretching the audience's imagination a little bit of where we've been in the past. But I always like to end this show with a little bit of gratitude because none of us got to where we are on our own. And maybe somebody gave you a kick in the pants or a leg up at some point in time that you're really grateful for. And I want to give you an opportunity to give kind of a public shout out. Well, first of all, I have this could go on for a long time. So I'm trying to even decide which angle to go with this. Look, I want to thank you and the other podcasters out there. Okay. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on your podcast, but I've been on over a hundred podcasts and 
the reason why I want to thank you is because you are helping people. And I, I don't want to get too corny, but the bottom line is, is that I tried, now I'm in a position where I, I live off the cash flow. I'm very fortunate. It's been like that a long time. And a lot of time I spend is trying to help new investors, other investors, try to help the brainstorm. I don't charge anybody, whatever. And that's one of the ways to get back. But the other way is I try to get on these podcasts and just share information to help people like today. I'm trying to give warnings, right? Investors is what you got to mm -hmm. think about. And I just want to thank you for providing the platform to helping investors to learn, to consider things. Without you guys, investors won't have nearly as much information. I talk to investors all the time who benefit greatly from your podcasts and other podcasts. And it's one of the main ways that people get educated today on these types of investing investments. So thank you for taking the time and the consistency to, to put these together, because without you guys, there'd be a lot less education out there that would be helping investors in this space. Well, Jeremy, thank you for that. I really, really appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, there's no doubt you're helping a ton of investors. The product is free, which is amazing, right? And it's just amazing what investors get out of this. All the podcasters in my mind are helping investors and that is a huge, huge thing. And uh, to me, investing is a team sport. We're all trying to help each other and just, just appreciate that and know that you guys are definitely appreciated by a ton of you. I've talked to hundreds of investors every year and a lot of them discuss the podcasts. So. Well, awesome. Well, I thank you because this has been a really great show. And I know that you actually, in the little pre-show, you're a little bit of angst about the message, but I think this is so spot on. And this is why we do this, right? Is to get the information out there. So Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for, for having me. And thanks for everyone who listened. Hopefully it was just helpful for whoever, uh, whoever's listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. The show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together to learn about what best in class looks like and opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.